Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 83. In 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. I can't say that I loved the Almighty Eternal One first, and then he'll turn to me and say, oh, that's wonderful. Hey, I'm glad you love me. Okay, now I'll love you back. Uh, uh, uh. So we are not initiating love. No, we're responding to it. Shalom. Welcome once again to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is episode number 83 and part 19 in my continuing series of Defining Biblical Love. And we're going to continue with our detailed look into 1 Corinthians 13.6. But now we're progressing on to the second half of the statement that Paul wrote about concerning divine biblical giving love. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now here we learn that the kind of giving love that fills each of us from Jehovah's generated source of all love is something that is available to each of us if we so choose to empty ourselves in his presence and to become naked and exposed in front of him so that he can fill us with his special generated love from above. Therefore, we must not forget this principle. Jehovah rejoices in and is happy in the truth. So let's look at this through the lens of Proverbs 29.18, which I addressed in greater detail in podcast episode number 80 and part 16 of this teaching series, But for now, let's revisit Proverbs 29.18 in English from the New King James Version of the Bible. Where there is no revelation or vision, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps or guards the law, referring to the Messianic kingdom law of the Torah. Now let's take a look at this statement as it could be understood from its original Hebrew text. This is my understanding. With no or nothing of a vision, referring to no word of revelation or what we would call in Hebrew a chidush, like a flash of insight, he is a people running loose, wild, free, disheveled, and out of control, all coming from the Hebrew word pe-resh-ein. However, in guarding the Torah, or the law, he has happiness. Once again, this statement of running loose, wild, free, disheveled, and out of control comes from the Hebrew word pe-resh-ein. But from this, we get the term Pharaoh, pe, resh, ein, he. In other words, Scripture considers Pharaoh as a kind of despot, a tyrannical ruler 
who is always singularly in control over all of the subjects of his kingdom. He is a God-man that is never accountable to anyone, always running loose, wild, free, disheveled, and out of anyone's purview of control over him. That is, Pharaoh is a man who prides himself not in serving, but in being served. Scripture considers him a free-flowing, I'm-in-charge, and a do-your-own-thing-and-don't-get-in-my-way kind of guy. But here's where this gets more interesting. When we peek into the image of the Hebrew spelling of Pharaoh, Pei Resh Ein Hei, and we read in it a kind of mirror image of the normal right-to-left reading of the word in Hebrew, strangely, it gives us the Hebrew term Oref, that is spelled Ein Resh Fei, Oref. And this is a word in Hebrew that means rigid, stiff-necked, unbending, dogmatic, inflexible, unyielding, and obstinate. And then to make things even more interesting, there is the name Orpah, Ein Reish Pei Hei. This was a Moabite woman that bears a very close link to the word Pharaoh by switching around a couple of the letters, and her name, Orpah, comes out to mean free-flowing and obstinate. And so, in comparing the three terms, Pharaoh, Oref, and Orpah, we essentially get reflective word pictures of the various characters in the biblical narratives. Let's take a look at them. First, Pharaoh, Pei, Reish, Ein, Hei, again, meaning to let loose, to do your own thing, to be free-flowing, and if you want, even out of control. Oref, that's Ein, Reish, Fei, which is essentially taking a look at the word Pharaoh in reverse, that's Ein, Reish, Fei, we get a meaning that is stiff-necked, rigid, unbending, obstinate, unyielding, and stubborn. Oref, that's the second word. And then the third word is Orpah. And again, this is a Moabite woman that is found in the book of Ruth 1.4 and 1.14 and 15. Orpah. And her name carries a veiled reference to a woman who was seen as free-flowing, stiff-necked, and yes, even obstinate. So let's take a look at Ruth 1, 14 through 15. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, Naomi, the mother-in-law to Ruth, is essentially saying, just go back and join Orpah back in the land of Moab. There's nothing here for you. 
But we know from the story that Ruth refuses to do that and decides instead to follow Naomi and say to her, your people are my people, your God is my God. But you can read that on your own. But what we do get out of this is that biblical names and ideas can be seriously intertwined and oftentimes will present meanings in Hebrew that speak absolute truth, even more straightforward than we can possibly imagine as compared to simply looking at the biblical terminology in English. So once again, I think Paul is right on target when he writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love rejoices in the truth. You see, Jehovah's love is embedded into his name, yud Hey vav Hey, which is a biblical abbreviation for the longer meaning of the phrase as it's found in Exodus 3.14. Ehieh asher ehieh. That is, I am what I am, or you could say, I am what I will be. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel. So the name yud Hey vav Hey or Yehovah as I say it, is embedded into what he calls the truth forever and ever. Simply, it is impossible for yud Hey vav Hey to rejoice in the iniquity of bending, twisting, and corrupting of his truth because his nature does not permit this. Yehovah is all about rejoicing in the truth, since this is who he is. Hence, Yeshua's statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, as it's found in John 14.6. Consequently, in receiving this, we are then written down into Yehovah's scroll of heaven, or better said, we're written down into his book of life, as it was when Yeshua said to his disciples, who were feeling pretty good about their great success in coming against invisible and dark demonic forces that were following them everywhere. Take a look at Luke 10 verse 20. Yeshua said, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In another place, Yeshua's disciples had become angry about the attitude of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaritans, and their rejection and dishonor of Yeshua and his messianic message. Consequently, the disciples said to him in Luke 9:54, "Master, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Eliyahu or Elijah did?" Yeshua's response, take a look at Luke 9:55 through 56. He turned and rebuked them and said, "You do not know what manner of spirit you are of." For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. This principle matches with some other words of Yeshua. Here's John 
For Ha-Elohim, or God, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, this draws us into Yehovah's love, as it is referenced for us in Yeshua's new covenant teaching. Take a look at Revelation 3.5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Yes, with our name written down in heaven, it means our name is written down into Jehovah's scroll or book of life. And this is something that is taught in Daniel 12, 1 through 2. And at that time, your people shall be saved, everyone who is found written in the book. Also, Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation, or you might say contempt, to those who are in Messiah Yeshua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has made me free from the law of sin and death. However, in a converse manner, rejecting Jehovah's free gift of salvation can mean only one thing, according to His written kingdom law. This is found in Exodus 32:33. And Jehovah said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Well, this leads me to the question, exactly who is this one that can be held guilty for sinning, quote, against me, as Jehovah said? Well, I think the answer is once again, exactly as Scripture spells it out. It's in John 5, 28, through 29. Do not marvel at this, says Yeshua, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done the good, referring to the tree of life, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done the evil, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, to the resurrection of contempt or condemnation. So once again, take a look at Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt or condemnation. So now with that, let's take a look at John three eighteen. He who believes in him is not condemned, says Yeshua, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the unique Son of Elohim. And John 8.24, Yeshua says, Therefore I said to you, referring to the religious leaders of his day, some of the Pharisees, that you will die, referring to the first of two deaths, physical. 
you will die in your sins. Then he goes on to say, For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he makes a second reference to dying, referring to the second of two deaths, spiritual. And then there is this confirming statement coming from Hebrews 9.27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, referring to a physical, natural death that every one of us have to go through. But after this, the judgment, referring to the judgment of a spiritual, eternal death, referred to as the second death. But then there are these happy and rejoicing new covenant statements of hope coming from Yeshua's mouth. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And in Matthew 26, 27 through 29, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave to them, to his disciples, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is based on Genesis 3.6 and Genesis 3.22. So Yeshua goes on to say, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This statement will be fulfilled when we go through our final last day great resurrection. So once again, we return back to this declaration in the New Covenant book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.28. Messiah was offered once to bear or lift up the sins of many, referring to bringing our inherited second death sentence of judgment into his own second death of judgment. We unite with him in that way. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And that is defining the principle of the last day great resurrection that will be coming to us in his name. It is coming. Wait for it. We learn from this that if we approach Yehovah in and through his sent one, Yeshua, well, then a legal redemption is accomplished and applied to our inherited state of being born into this world with iniquity. That is, being born into this world with a nature that is bent and twisted from the passed-down DNA in the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, which is what Paul calls the law of sin and death, because it is written into Jehovah's laws of the kingdom. Once again, Genesis 2.17, in saying to Adam that if he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, that is the etzadat tov verah, 
then, quote, in dying, you will die. Therefore, in and through Yeshua, Jehovah has something to greatly rejoice in, that the sentence of judgment, in dying, you will die, is mitigated and satisfied by the actions of the truth, and thus the second death, as it is mentioned in Genesis 2.17, can no longer make any future claim on a soul that comes to Yehovah in the name of Yeshua, based on such teachings as Isaiah 53. This, of course, can be and should be to each of us a trusted confirmation that Yehovah's second death judgment, according to his kingdom law, is fully complete and legally satisfied. So therefore, Paul writes about Yehovah rejoicing in freely giving his love to each of us and to the whole world through the actions of the truth that he wants us to happily receive. In receiving his works of the truth, he wants us to do justness, to show compassion, and to walk humbly with him in pouring out unto others what he has already poured out into us. Again, this brings Jehovah great joy. And so, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Love rejoices in the truth. And again, he writes in another place, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10, For Ha Elohim, or God, did not appoint us to wrath, but to get salvation through our Master Yeshua the Messiah, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, referring to our promised last day great resurrection. And this is precisely the basis for the following dialogue between Yeshua and Marta concerning the death of her brother Eleazar, or Lazarus. Here is John 11.39 for that narrative. Yeshua said, Take away the stone. Marta, the sister of him, referring to Lazarus, who was dead, said to him, Master, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. So then we must ask, why did Yeshua only come so late to resurrect Eleazar on the fourth day of his passing away? After all, Marta was correct in saying, Oh, there's going to be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Well, to understand this delay of Yeshua coming to Eleazar, we must look at the truth in Malachi 4.2, which is going to be Malachi 3.20 in the Hebrew text. The narrative concerns the fourth day arrival of the Messiah. However, for the prophet Malachi, it was a pure prophetic word of poetry. He spoke about the coming of the Son of Justness, 
or if you would, the Son of Righteousness. Here is Malachi 4.2, which is from the Hebrew text at chapter 3, verse 20. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Justness shall arise with healing in his wings. Well, this was a definitive metaphor in ancient Jewish thought, expressing Judaism's messianic hope and linking it back to the creation story of the great luminary, the sun, which came to us on day four. Then Elohim made two great lights, the greater light, or luminary, to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back. This is Avi ben Mordechai. And you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 83. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host. Okay, welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. Let's continue where we left off just before the break. Well, to understand this delay of Yeshua coming to Eleazar, we must look at the truth in Malachi 4.2, which is going to be Malachi 3.20 in the Hebrew text. The narrative concerns the fourth day arrival of the Messiah. He spoke about the coming of the Son of Justness, or if you would, the Son of Righteousness. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Justness shall arise with healing in his wings. The great luminary in Hebrew is Shemesh, spelled Sheen Mem Sheen. This is the sun, and it's sunlight of the creation's fourth day. Now, over the centuries, it came to be understood much like a countdown clock for the arrival of Messiah. In considering Psalm 90, verse 4, a day is like a thousand years. The ancient prophets expected Messiah at the end of three full days of a thousand years each, meaning that as year 4,000 began to dawn since the making of Adam, they expected this healing son of justness to come with his covering wings of the truth. So, Yeshua said in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your sons together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This coming Messiah was expected as one sent by his father to bring unto the Israel of Elohim, or the Israel of God, the word of the truth. His objective was to fulfill the Hebrew language concept of the Son 
of righteousness, or the son of justness, which is again Shemesh, Shin Mem Shin. But when you change the vowel pointing of that root, you'll get the pronunciation for the word Shamash, which means a servant. Again, as Yeshua said in Matthew 20, 27-28, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. With the arrival of this servant king sent one from the Father, there was great rejoicing that the truth had finally come, anticipating a just and complete messianic redemption. This was a testimony received with great gladness and joy, certainly with the common people of the land. Let's take a look at Luke 2.11-14. And in reading this, I'm going to add some of my own understanding and editorial clarifications, okay? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah Jehovah, and this is the sign, referring to the Hebrew letters Aleph Tav, that is, Aleph Tav. He's going to come to you. That will be your sign. You will find a very small child wrapped in old, discarded priestly garments, lying in a sukkah, that is a temporary tent-like shelter built for the biblical festival of Sukkot, and suddenly there was with this sent one from the Father a multitude of the heavenly armies praising Ha Elohim, or God, and saying, Glory to Ha Elohim, or glory to God, in the highest of the heavens and on earth, what I think is earthen vessels wholeness, completeness in healing man's inherited brokenness coming from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil in the acceptable year. That is referring to the Yovel or the year of Jubilee of Yehovah. This comes from Leviticus 25, 9-13 and Malachi 4, 1-6. And his coming is that which will benefit man. And that is how I am reading and understanding Luke 2, 11 through 14. So with the arrival of Yeshua in the fourth day of Eleazar passing away, recall that there was a short dialogue recorded between Marta and Yeshua in John eleven twenty one through 27. Now Martha said to Yeshua, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of Elohim or God, Elohim will give you. Yeshua said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, oh, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, referring to the 
physical first death that all of us have to go through, he will live, referring to the resurrection of the last day. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, there will be no spiritual second death for that one who believes. So Yeshua then says to Martha, Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Master. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of Jehovah, who is to come into the world. Indeed, this is something to truly rejoice with in the same way that Jehovah rejoices with all those who will hear the voice of the Word as it was recorded for us through Yeshua's arbitrating prayer in John 17, 13 through 16. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should guard them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, this is beautiful. So now with this, let us go on to look at the next couple of statements of Yeshua's prayer. This is from John 17, 17 through 18. Sanctify them in your truth. He goes on to say, Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes... I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Or if you would like to put it a different way, that they also may be set apart in distinction to live for the truth. And so we learn here that the truth is the word and the word is a person, not some vague, loose idea that truth is all kind of just relative, depending on how you grow up, the idea that Yeshua is praying about in his prayer of John 17, about being sanctified or made distinct in the truth, this idea matches well with what Paul said concerning the testimony of our actions in the congregation of Messiah. 1 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, tells us the story in how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God or the house of High Elohim, which is the congregation of the living God. And then the statement goes on to say that he is the pillar and the earthen vessel of the truth. Yeah, that's exactly how I'm reading it. He is the pillar and the earthen vessel of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of the image of Elohim, 
The term godliness is defined as the image of Elohim. In other words, he is making us imagers of his name. We're becoming imagers of Messiah. We're looking more like him every day. So Paul goes on to write in Timothy, Ha Elohim, or God, was manifested in the flesh, justified in, or you could say justified by, or justified with, the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Goyim, the Gentiles, believed upon in the world, received up into glory. So here we're learning that the word of truth is the person of Messiah who was called the truth. And in that, we are called the congregation of the word of the truth because he's in us and we're in him. And together, he is the head, we're the body. So we're the congregation of the word. That's the Messiah who is the truth. Well, this makes awesome sense in light of Yeshua's declaration in John 8, 30-31. Then Yeshua said to those Yehudim, or the Jews, who believed him. So now, these are believers that he's speaking to. If you abide or live in my word, which if we were to put that into Hebrew, he would be saying, if you abide or live in the word that is to me, then you are my disciples indeed. So we have to live in him and walk in him in order to be his disciples. And then he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. To know the truth in Hebrew thought is an experiential idea, not some kind of cerebral exercise like you would when you are studying Greek philosophy or some kind of intellectual stimulation. To know something in Hebrew thought is to actually experience it. So this brings us back to an important New Covenant declaration in 1 John 419. We love him because he first loved us. I can't say that I loved the Almighty Eternal One first, and therefore I somehow can get his attention that I'm loving him, and then he'll turn to me and say, oh, that's wonderful. Hey, I'm glad you love me. Okay, now I'll love you back. Uh, uh, uh. It says, we love him because he first loved us. So we are not initiating love. No, we're responding to it. And also, take a look at this statement from Romans 5, 8 through 9. But high Elohim, or God, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, that is, dirty, filthy, stinking sinners, Messiah died for us. Well, much more then, having now been made just or righteous in or by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath in or through him. 
what is the wrath that is being talked about? I think the wrath is the great tribulation. And that great tribulation is going to point us to Genesis 2.17, in dying you will die, which is the second death. So there's kind of a two-part idea here of being saved from wrath through or in him. We are saved because of the great last day resurrection, meaning we're not going to go through the great tribulation of Jehovah's wrath. No, I can't possibly imagine that he would do that to his own redeemed sons and daughters and children. But there is a very difficult time leading up to the great tribulation, and that is called in Hebrew the Hevle Shel HaMashiach, that is the birth pangs of the Messiah. So I think we're going to go through the birth pangs of the Messiah. But when it comes to the last day great tribulation, no, we are taken out in the great resurrection just before that terrible, terrible, horrible event that is called a day of darkness. It's going to be horrible. I don't see that in Scripture, that we're going to go through that great, horrible, great tribulation, because that is what is going to lead unto the second death. And we have already been judged in and through Yeshua. So when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that divine giving love rejoices in the truth, there can be no mistake with the interpretation Because to rejoice in the truth, this means to rejoice in the Word. And to rejoice in the Word means to rejoice in the Torah. And to rejoice in the Torah means to rejoice in a person. That is Messiah. So again, John 17, 17 through 18. Yeshua says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is the truth. The word and the truth are synonymous terms. They're about King Messiah, not some vague idea of philosophy and theology. So now we go to Psalm 119, 160. Here is my understanding of it as I'm reading it from the Hebrew. The head of your word is the truth. And every one of your just judgments is forever. So you see, this was and is the word. Not just some vague speech, some philosophical point of view. No way. The word is a person. The word is Messiah Yehovah, who came to be flesh. Just as it says, in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the unique one of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 5.39, You search the Scriptures. That's what Yeshua says to the religious leaders, some of the Pharisees of His day. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And Yeshua says, 
And these are they which testify of me. Hence, we learn about the truth from these statements that I'm going to read for you. Let's start with 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of Ha Elohim, or God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in justness, that the man of Elohim, or the man of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now let's look at Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of Elohim, that is God, the one who is Messiah, the servant king, he is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all is naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right. Well, based on this principle, it was Moses saying in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, or Shema, to my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. He's going to hold everyone accountable to hearing the words of King Messiah. This indeed was a messianic prophecy, as it was understood by the late Second Temple period of Judaism, such as in Acts 3, 22 through 23. So once again, this brings us back to Yeshua's word to the religious leaders of his day in John 8, 23 through 24. You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. That is, the physical, material first death that every single one of us has to go through. We have no way of getting out of that one. So then Yeshua goes on to say, For if you do not believe that I am He, meaning King Messiah, the one that has come to bring forth a redemption for all of you. If you don't believe that, Yeshua says, you will die in your sins. And he's referring, I believe, to the spiritual second death that is again found in Genesis 2.17. In dying, you will die. There's your two deaths. In rejecting the freely given love of Yehovah, an unredeemed man most certainly can expect to remain under the curse of the law, referring to the law of sin and death, as Paul calls it, which is coming from 
the tree of the knowledge of good but evil, the Yetzadat Tov Berah. I hope that we can better enter into the depths of Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 13.6. Yehovah rejoices in the truth, but he cannot be happy in the avon, or the twistedness and the bentness of what he defines as lawlessness or no Torah from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil because we inherit that when we are born into this world. And again, this is why we have to be born again or born from above because our ancestors threw us under the bus, so to speak. They took it away from us and gave us a bad inheritance when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. And Jehovah simply wants to change all of that, and he knows that we can't do this on our own. So he comes to us and says, I'll give it to you in my name. I'll do it. You don't have to do it. I will do it for you. But because we're all a bunch of prideful people, and we just love to do things on our own and feel like we have earned something or deserve something, we're just going to continue doing things our way. And Jehovah says, your way is not my way, and I'm not going to accept it. It's that simple. Remaining content and happy to pursue truth from our own definition results in our rejection of Jehovah's freely given truth of the word in Yeshua. He cannot rejoice in iniquity, and neither can we. Thanks a lot for joining me at cominghome.co.il. This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.